Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. speaker today is known to everybody here, so I won't give him a grandiose introduction, but I'm glad to have a Brother Frankie Gomez with us. He's going to minister God's Word to us at this time. Brother Frankie, please. These next couple of weeks, we're going to be considering the 12. Um, we're going to be considering um, those 12 that were called um, in, in Luke's Gospel and in the book of Acts, Apostles. Um, the other Gospel accounts, each of them uses the word Apostle once. Um, most of the other times they're called the 12, or Matthew a lot calls them the 12 disciples. And... Um, I think it's been fitting what's been shared today across the world. Um, you see um, cathedrals built in honor of some of these men. Um, you see stained glass windows with them looking mighty or looking pious or with halos around their heads. Um, some would even think they could answer prayers or forgive sins. Um, and this morning we considered um, the Ark of the Covenant, which is treated the same way. Um, we know the power was not the Ark. The power was the God of the Ark. Um, the power in these men was not of these men, but it was of the Lord Jesus. Um, about, it, they were called about halfway into Jesus's ministry. About halfway, um, we find in Luke chapter 6 and verses 13 to 16. And really, let's start in verse 12. Luke chapter 6. Um, I asked um, Billy if we could read there in Luke chapter 5 just to really give the beginning of this phase of Jesus's ministry. Um, but Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which was also the traitor. So these are the twelve men. Um, not one was a scholar or teacher. Not one was a scholar or teacher. They span the political spectrum of the day. One was a zealot. And hopefully next week we'll get into the individuals. Um, but that was a, a very uh, a terrorist, a terrorist group that refused to pay taxes to Rome, that would assassinate Roman leaders, 
when it says Simon the Zealot, he was, he was a terrorist. And then the other, another one was a tax collector. One that Simon the Zealot would have had his party assassinate. The complete other end of the political spectrum. You know, some, and um, I've come across many people supposed to be um, experts in the scripture, and, and they would say Jesus, you know, was just the leader of a small political sect. There's no way he was the leader of a small political sect. He had, he had someone on the very far left and someone on the very far right in his inner circle. That would never happen if he was trying to lead a political, a political campaign. At least four of them, maybe seven, were fishermen and possibly even close friends from childhood um, from the same town of Capernaum. Most were from Galilee, an agricultural region, which was at the intersection of trade routes. Galilee would remain their home base for most of Jesus's ministry after their calling. Not Judea, not, not Jerusalem. In fact, only one of the apostles was from that Judea region. Um, if you don't know who, um, it's, he was from the town of Cariot, and it's part of his surname, Cariot, Iscariot. It was Judas. Um, Judas the traitor was the only one that was claimed to be from the Jerusalem area, um, from Judah. These men as we read through the Gospels, they're, they're prone to mistakes, misstatements, wrong attitudes, lapses of faith, and bitter failure. When they carry on, carried on after Jesus' ascension, though, they left, suddenly, were able to leave a, a world-changing impact. Acts 17.6, one of the Jewish leaders said, they've turned the world upside down. The twelve were personally selected and called by Christ, who knew them as their creator. He knew them as only their creator could know them, inside and out. The numbers of the hairs on their head, he knew. He knew Judas Iscariot. He chose him out of a humongous group, an ever-growing multitude of disciples. He chose Judas Iscariot and gave him all the same privileges in this life. And in this life that Judas had gave, them all, gave him all the same privileges and blessings he gave to the others. And in that intense discipleship training, from this point in Luke chapter 6, it was probably 18 months from this point to the crucifixion. Less than two years. It would rest on them, the propagation of the gospel, the founding of the church to these 12 men. And Jesus knew it would be 11. Their training, again, it was best best described in, in months, not years. He taught them the scriptures, 
He taught them true theology. He discipled them in godly living, moral living. Taught them to pray, to forgive, to serve humbly. He gave them prophecy, the things that would come. He told them what would happen next. He used them as vessels to to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to do all manner of miracles. Three of them even got a brief glimpse of Him in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. It It was a very brief but intense schedule of discipleship. And when it was over, over, so to speak, on the night of his betrayal, we read in Matthew 26, 56, all the disciples forsook him and fled. Even, even a little while after, they went back to their old vocation, many of them. We read that in John 21 at the beginning. Peter said, I'm going fishing, and a bunch of them went with him. But encouraged by the risen Lord, They did go back to their apostolic calling and empowered by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they finally undertook the work that Jesus had called them to. A work they began that continues today. And as we go into these 12, we'll see that they are undeniable proof that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. From baptism to resurrection, Jesus' ministry was about three years. I think most of us know that. We've studied Scripture. We know it's about a three-year ministry. Um, The intensive training, like I said, uh, the intensive training of those 12 was about half as long. He called those 12 from an ever-increasing multitude of followers. Mark introduces the the change in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Um, I'll turn there. In Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, it's just a quick little change. And this is how Mark explains it. And he goeth up to a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came to him. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. And then Mark goes into his list. That they should be with Him that He might send them forth to preach. He called to Him whom He would. All of those that would come and out of that multitude, He chose twelve. Like I said, sometimes scriptures, um, the scriptures called, the twelve are called disciples. It's that Greek word, mathetes. Um, students, learners. Um, He had many disciples, and a lot of times disciples, especially before this change, was used on the multitude. Um, 
he had many disciples, but these 12, we see, we read it in, in Mark 3 and then here in Luke 6, um, these 12 were specifically called and chosen. Uh, sometimes they're called, especially in Luke and in the Acts, they're called the apostles, apostoli, in Greek, messengers, sent ones. Um, Luke uses it in his Gospels and Acts. Matthew, um, like I said earlier, Matthew, Mark, use it once in reference to his disciples. John uses it once, but it, he, it's just the word apostoli in a story about those sent out. It wasn't used specifically to people on the scene. Um, in Matthew, a lot of times uses the 12 disciples or the 12. Mark, again, only uses apostoli once, other times the 12. John always said the 12. Um, the number 12 must have had some significance, and we won't go really into numerology or anything like that, but um, we knew it was significant because in Acts, they replaced Judas to get back to 12. Um, if, if 12 wasn't significant to them, they would have just left it at 11. Um, but it was significant in some way. They replaced Judas. Um, and beginning with the very first converts at Pentecost, all believers looked to these 12 for leadership. Um, as the church grew, there in Acts chapter 2, it, it talks about the faithfulness to the truth the faithfulness was described in these terms. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Acts 2.42. Um, we see how they were given power through the Holy Spirit. Um, supernatural power to work signs and wonders, to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. And as we look into their lives, I want to make sure that we know um, it is not to elevate them in any way, but to bring all glory to God. Eleven of these men shared that passion to the end of their lives, to bring all glory to God, that they would decrease, that He would increase, as John the Baptist said. And as we go through them, may the, that Spirit of Christ who taught them transform us the way he transformed them. And for these two, um, the rest of today and next Sunday, um, I, I want to us to consider their calling as disciples, as apostles, as the 12, to happen here in Luke 6 and what we read in Mark 3. Um, sometimes, um, we we look at John 1, um, we look at like what we saw in Luke 5, and we think of that as their calling to apostleship, but that, that those were calls to discipleship. Those were calls to the multitude. If we look in the chronology of, of Jesus' ministry, John 1 was towards the beginning of his ministry. Um, when, when we have those that were the, the two disciples of John and and they go in, into Peter's boat, and, um, and Andrew goes to Peter and, and Nathaniel, and, and they start gathering together. They're being added to his large group of disciples. 
the calling to being an apostle was here. Out of the multitude of disciples, these 12 were called. Now, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, if we do look at the beginning, it started controversially. A lot of times, especially in the remembrance, we read in Luke chapter 4, when he opens his ministry by the reading of that passage from Isaiah, but sometimes we forget how that ended. He was led out to the edge of the city and they want to throw him off a cliff right away at the beginning of his ministry. It didn't build in controversy. It started in controversy. Um, however, after that incident, he goes up into Galilee and he's tremendously popular among the Galileans in that region. And as word of his miracles grew, massive hordes of people came out to see him. Huge multitudes. And as we read in Luke chapter 5, um, as we read and we heard in Luke chapter 5, the people were pressing against him to hear him. And he goes into a boat. And I think it's interesting, Luke points out, there were two boats. I don't know who owned the other boat. It, it was probably somebody there, a disciple, somebody there to hear him speak or to be healed, someone who believed that this was the Messiah. If they came from across the lake or from another side of the lake, they just came to see Jesus. One of the boat was Simon Peter's. The other boat, I don't know. Um, and it's interesting. The gospel writers do this a lot, um, more so in John, where they say, and two of the disciples, or two of them went, two of them went with Jesus. Um, here, there, there's two boats. Um, it could have been mine or yours. <laughs> right? There are two boats there. Well, one, one was Simon Peter's. And what follows is Peter's calling to discipleship. They had come and they had joined the multitude. They had joined the multitudes to following. They started following Jesus. But they hadn't given up their, fi their fishing. They hadn't given up their families. Just... Just before this, um, in the end of Luke chapter 4, we see Peter's um, mother-in-law being healed. They were still with their families. They were still tied down. They still had their roots. But they were following Jesus. We knew that from John chapter 1, from the beginning of his ministry, they were following him. But now... But now they're called to ministry. Now they're called to ministry. As they, they finish their fishing careers. I mean, you think of it, that, like Peter had said that they were out all night the night before. They had caught nothing the night before. It's the middle of the day. It's the worst time to fish. If any of you, when, when the sun is hot and the water is hot, the fish go down deep. And if you're fishing with nets as they did, you're not going to catch anything. 
They're, the fish are trying to stay cool in the depths. You're not supposed to catch anything. Peter knows this, saying, look, this is when I usually come and take my nap. It's the middle of the day. It's hot. I think it's hot in Florida. If you've been, I've never been to Israel, but I mean, in the middle of the day, you're in a desert. It's time to be indoors, not out on a boat on a desert lake. But he went, he followed. It doesn't make sense. He tossed down his nets as Jesus teaches this lesson. And they win the lottery. They catch more fish than they've ever caught in their career. And they leave it on the shore. They win the lottery and leave the winnings on the shore and follow him. The call to ministry. In Luke 6, we see the call to apostleship, to leadership. And we go towards the end. And it's a call to martyrdom. To following, to discipleship, to apostleship, to martyrdom. In in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 where we started, Luke says, it came to pass in those days. In those days, it means in in that time, in that time frame, it doesn't really have to do with the calendar or with time, but it's a phase of Jesus' ministry. Oppression is about to peak. Jesus had gone into, Mark and Luke both, both say Jesus had gone into the mountain and prayed all night. He was, um, he was under duress. And if we read Luke's account straight through, we see in chapter 5 and verse 17 is Luke's first mention of the Pharisees. Just before this, Luke chapter 5, verse 17, the first time in Luke's gospel the Pharisees are introduced. And alongside the Pharisees, it says the doctors of the law or the teachers of the law, they get a name in verse 21, and that's the scribes. So just before the calling out of the twelve, we're introduced to Jesus' chief adversaries. The oppression grows quickly. In verses 17 to 26 of chapter 6, I should say in chapter 5, um, in chapter 5, verses, they're there in chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, to oppose his healing and forgiving of the paralytic. That's why they show up all the way out there in Galilee. Um, Then in verses 27 to 39, they oppose him for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. 
praise God, he eats and drinks with sinners. They oppose him in verse in chapter 6 and verses 1 through 5. They oppose him when he permits his disciples to pluck the heads of grain and eat them on the Sabbath. And then leading up to his calling of the twelve, um, verses 6 to 11, they oppose him for healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. That hostility is escalating. It started with him almost being thrown off of a cliff. It wasn't his time. He went through their midst. But now the hostility is, is reaching that murderous fever pitch. The hatred was escalating. His coming death was coming into focus. The crucifixion is less than two years away from this point, and he, he knows all things. It was time to select and prepare his official representatives. And now the focus of the ministry, the focus of the ministry turns from the multitudes. Before this, everywhere we read of Jesus' ministry, the first, the first one and a half years, the first 18 months, it's the multitudes, the multitudes, the multitudes. And now... Every once in a while, it's just the 12. It's focused. Just the 12. He had been rejected. The Sanhedrin never called. Here's one that people are calling a Messiah, a possible Messiah. The first step, as soon as someone said that, they went before the Sanhedrin. They didn't even give him a hearing. He'd been rejected. When he focuses on these 12, you just can't help but keep in the back of your mind Judas Iscariot is there. And he knew him. He knew Judas. He poured that love, all, all the teaching. All the teaching, all that Judas Iscariot possibly performed miracles when he sent the 70 out two by two. Judas was one of the leaders. Not just that, he held an official office, he was the treasurer. The Lord let him hold the, the money. He knew Judas's feelings the whole time. Um, we we talked about how Judas, how Judas was the only one from that southern region in Israel, Judah, in Judea, and all these guys knew each other. We see how they kind of talked, you know, they, getting their brothers, their multiple sets of brothers, um, it, and. 
and here is Judas. He, he's probably, he probably had been from that region. He was the only one with some knowledge, working knowledge of the scriptures as a student, being so close to Jerusalem, possibly. He had that greed in his heart. Um, we see in, later on in the Gospels how it's explained he stole from the money bag often. When many, you know, Jesus was never about, even though the multitudes followed him, he never did anything, we know, to gain more followers. That was never the purpose. The purpose was not to be popular. I mean, we, we see in, in John how he, he spoke a whole message with, seemingly with the purpose of thinning the crowd. <laughs> when many of his disciples walked with him no more. But the 12 stayed. Judas stayed at that point. Judas stayed at that point. He was still, he still had status. He was still collecting. But then, I find it interesting, the timing, the timing of when he leaves to go to the chief priests. Um, whenever I'm looking for a chronology in one book, I think Matthew goes the most in order. But what happened right before Judas sells out the Lord? Judas was there the whole time and kind of hiding. I mean, we don't hear a ton about Judas Iscariot. We don't hear a ton about him until one particular story. And it happens in Matthew chapter 26. And starting in verse 6, and Matthew is very kind in this account. He doesn't point out Judas, but we read in other gospel accounts of the Supper of Bethany that Judas was the leader of this or at least was the first to say it. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 6. Now when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. Um, in other in other accounts of this, this was a year's wages. A full year's wages. Judas, who keeps the money bag and steals from it. But when his disciples, in verse 8, when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, to what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Again, in other accounts, we, knew, we know who led that. It was Judas. And then Jesus rebukes. 
Jesus had rebuked Peter many times before this. Andrew had gotten it a couple of times. Um, James and John had been along for a few of them and seen him do this to individuals, especially in the twelve. This is the first time we really read of Judas receiving a rebuke. And at the the first time, the first time the Lord Jesus called him out, we have verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. He, he had had enough. Enough of hiding. Enough of pretending. At the first rebuke, he left. Jesus had said, you can't serve two masters, both God and money. Let us not be the kind of disciple, the kind of follower, that at the first rebuke or the first time things get tough, to run and, and betray the Lord. We've, we've seen it. If we've spent time among a group of believers, among the multitudes of those who would call on the name of Christ, we've seen it. We've seen how quickly some seem to flee. We see what they trade the truth of God for. The lies. Let us not... Let, let us search, ask the Lord to search our hearts, to root out any, any God, any idol that would sit on the throne. Let us not lift up these men as they would not want to be lifted up. And we were talking in, in the break, um, it was mentioned the Ark of the Covenant. It, as soon as you put something in the place, of God. As soon as you put something in the place of God, it is idolatry of the first order. It could have been any one of the twelve, but Jesus knew all along exactly who it would be. He allowed Judas into those intimate gatherings. But there was one that Judas was not was not able to participate in. And we see at, from the calling of the apostles, there in Mark 3 and Luke 6, how they're the twelve, they're together. And Jesus said on some occasions, although one of you is a devil, he knew. He permitted the devil to be there. He permitted Satan to be amongst those intimate moments with the twelve. 
But there was a time he said, get out. And in verse 20 of that Matthew 26, As now, when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. When they sat down, Judas was there. Um, the chronology that um, that many biblical people who study the Bible have put together of this time in a, in Schofield's um, notes, he has an order of events. Um, we have the taking. By our Lord and the disciples, their places at the table. Here in verse 20, they sit at the table. Then there's a contention of who would be greatest. Then the Lord Jesus washes the disciples' feet, you know, trying to get from all from all the all four gospels an understanding of what happens. So they sit at the table. While they're sitting down or right after they've seated, they're still arguing about who's going to sit on his right hand. They're still arguing about you know, their place at the table, who's going to be great. While they're arguing, Jesus gets the towel, takes the place of a servant. While they're arguing about who's going to be greatest, and Jesus takes the place of a low, the lowest servant, washing their feet, washing even Judas's feet. Then is the identification of Judas as the traitor. And then he leaves. Jesus washed Judas's feet. It got to that point. The offer of forgiveness, the offer of repentance, the offer, the offer extended as long as it could be extended. And then verse 21, as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? I wonder if Judas said, Lord, is it I? I wonder if he was one that said it. He knew He knew it was him. He had already, we read, he had already made a promise to betray him. He had already done it. And he's sitting there. And all his closest friends, companions, are worried that it's them. He knows it's him. And we know from the Gospel of John that Peter nudges John who's leaning against Jesus, comforting him maybe, or maybe Jesus comforting him in this moment of just disbelief. One of us? I think when, you know, he had shared the script, you know, one one of his disciples would betray him, but he had many disciples. One of us? One of the 12? This band of brothers? that have been together for 18 months, one of us? And then Jesus gives them the sign. And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall 
betray me. You know, they didn't, they didn't understand how it could be one of them. They were wondering if it was them. Like, this is crazy. Is it going to be me? And Jesus gives them the sign. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. And then here it is. Then Judas, which had already betrayed him, that's past tense, had betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He was the final one. All of them had said, is it I? Is it I? And then Judas says, is it I? Maybe Judas is thinking, for the first time, he really does know everything. He didn't really believe him those 18 months. He didn't really trust in him as his Savior. And now he knows it's too late. He really does know everything. Is it I? Thou hast said. And in other Gospels we read that Satan came into Judas and he left. The Lord Jesus said in John's Gospel, what you have to do, go quickly. Go quickly. And Judas left that scene. Satan was permitted so far and then sent away from that remembrance feast that he was going to institute. That, that bread, his body and his blood was not for Satan. Not for the deceiver. And he wouldn't allow that pollution of that moment And then after they left, they went into the garden. After they ate, they went into the garden. Judas probably knew that knew that's what was going to happen. He knew what would, you know, that Jesus' plan. Jesus goes back and forth, and when we look at the other disciples, um, we'll look more into this passage, but just thinking of Judas's story in verse 47 of Matthew chapter 26. While he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, still one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Um, this, it, hundreds of soldiers, hundreds. 
In other Gospels, it says they gave him a battalion. They didn't know what kinds of signs and wonders Jesus would perform to get out of this. So many times he had slipped through their fingers. Uh, they thought it was because of the multitudes. They thought, We've, we're always tricked. He always slides through the multitudes, through the crowds. We need to get him alone. And finally, they had an insider. Jesus doesn't rebuke Judas at this point. He doesn't send him away. He doesn't tell him, stop, don't come close. Now, verse 48, Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. Like that would help. Hold him fast. He didn't understand Jesus' power. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, companion, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Um, you know, in other places it says, would you, you betray the Son of God with a kiss? But that ultimate sign of friendship, the ultimate sign of love, the Lord Jesus loved Judas unconditionally. But Judas, for that length of time, had only seen Jesus as a way to earn some money on the side. Um, as a way to get rich. And when Jesus had rebuked him and allowed the waste of a year's worth of money, a year's salary, Judas couldn't take it anymore. Now think of what, that was a year's salary. Think of what in our life at times we've betrayed the Lord for. Said, nope, just that far. Lord, not this. As we look into the lives of the other 11 next week, remember, they were ordinary people. If anything, less than ordinary people. Jesus could have gotten the 11 most dynamic orders of the Israelites. He could have pulled anybody. But he chose these. In other scriptures, in the book of Acts, the Jewish leaders marvel. These are unlearned men. Why? Why would he choose those men? There would be no other explanation but that they had been with Jesus. In our lives, in our lives, let's not elevate anything of ourselves, any intellect, any effort that we put into our studies, any effort that we put into being holy, but recognize that it is only the grace of God and the Holy Spirit that is in us that leads us to any good thing. You know, the, the saying is popular, the devil made me do it, among 
those that, that live lifestyles of sin. But is it popular among those that live for Christ to say, God made me do it when they do something good? The Lord made me do it. The Holy Spirit made me do it, right? Those that are sinful, it was popular for a long time to say the devil made me do it. But these 11 men, as they went forward in their ministry, were always first to say, God allowed me to do it. God, the Jesus of Nazareth is the one that is doing these things through me. And any time that we get any praise for anything that we do or any godly characteristic that we have, let us give glory to God and make it known that it's the Lord who lives in us that is keeping us living and keeping us going. And we'll see when we look at these 11 men, there's nothing extraordinary about them, nothing extraordinary about me, that God would use me, that God would use you as a vessel to bring him glory. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, as we look, we look into the life here on earth of the Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. When we look into those, the lives of those 11 men, 12 men that he called to be with him in the most intense time of his ministry on earth. Lord, help us to see your power and the power of the Lord Jesus working through those men, not to elevate them at all, but to elevate the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that was in these men as they started that the church is in us. And we pray that as we go through the world daily, Lord, that we would recognize opportunities for this power to be used. Lord, we pray that as during the, these tumultuous times, that people would be able to see us, and as Scripture says, that just question the hope that is within us. And Lord, give us an answer. Give us the answer that those that are truly interested would, Lord, be turned to you. And we pray for all of our witness and testimony as we go out from this place and into our daily lives. We pray for safety. Um, but most importantly, Lord, we pray for a strong witness and testimony for you in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.